more, but um, it would be on the spectrum of knowing how much, not a lot. Um, yeah, that's where YouTube comes in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been learning a lot from uh, New Zealand television. They've been doing a lot. So it's government funded. So they have an obligation to teach about all the Polynesian, pretty much all the Polynesian cultures, mainly, mainly the Maori. If you watch the news, it's in Maori and in English. Um, so they've been putting out a lot of good content dealing with all these untold his historical um, situations that have happened in the past in, uh, in, in Polynesia. And so that's where, you know, I learned a lot about Fiji from PCC. Yeah. And that's where I met my first Fijian. You are my second Fijian that I've ever met. <laughs> um, Hopefully not the worst. No, no. Um, but I think I've known you for five, five years. You actually helped move us from our moving van into our storage unit. And uh, so I've known you a little bit, and then there was a huge gap. Um, and then we started, well, you started working at our current job, and then it came like a year and a half later. But our connection is my brother, Bud, who is associate producer intern uh cameraman <laughs> sound guy um uh so yeah I, that's where i know you from and we we kind of like so i know a little bit about your backstory um i know that you went to dixie state you were a walk-on on the football team yeah uh special teams and linebacker linebacker yeah and um, that brings us to one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because you took a huge gamble on yourself. And we're going to talk about the two times that I believe that you took huge gambles on yourself because you bet on yourself because you know your self-worth and you're not going to take anything less than that. Um, so the way that Bud tells me was... You walked on, and you were killing it. <laughs> Sam, I don't know if I was killing it, but you were doing. I was good. Good. Enough. You're good, good enough. enough. Good enough. And you, I'll let you tell the story. Okay. Um, so it really started a little bit further back. I was serving a mission for um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints in Scotland and Ireland. And when I had graduated from high school, um, I left with this huge passion of football. I had only played my junior and senior year because I was mainly a baseball guy. And when I got onto the mission, there was a couple buddies there from Utah that were like, yeah, I'm gonna play football. When I get back, it's gonna be awesome. And I was just so jealous, I was like, if there is any way I can play football after this mission, I will do it wherever it is. But the thing is, is I wasn't good enough to get a scholarship or have anybody even look at me or come close to that. So like, I uh, 
met a mission companion. Um, Blake Barney was the guy. He he is one of the most outstanding human beings I know, and he pretty much was like, "Hey, I know a school <laughs> that you could come down to play for. I think you just need to try out, and I they'll accept your grades." Because the other reason that it was tough for me to get into any other school, because my dream was to play at Utah University. But my grades were awful. I walked out of my senior year with the worst ACT score I had ever heard of. And I still, to this day, have not told anybody what that score is. <laughs> I was going to so, tell you, tell me your score. No. I bet mine's worse. <laughs> nope. I've kept that. Uh, that's actually one of the things my wife doesn't even know. She knows everything about me except my ACT <laughs> score. Because it was just, I just wasn't focused. I didn't know what my goals were. I wasn't very planned out for that. But he pretty much was like, hey, just move down to St. George. I'll get you an interview with the coach. From there, I can't really do much after that. So I was like, okay, I'll move down. I left with only one. I worked enough when I got home with one semester left, one semester's worth in my back pocket. So I was like, this is all I got. If it if this doesn't work out, I got to work. I got to go back to Salt Lake City. I got to face my parents, move in with them again. And that'll be that. So he got me an interview with Coach Mack, and he was like, you know what? Like, we'll let you try out. You can try. We'll, we'll start you on special teams and see how well you do. And I just had to work my butt off from then because I didn't come off my mission very fit either. I was a pretty chubby kid when I came back, so I had to work out a bunch, and I had to figure that out. Um... And that was pretty much that. I, I got on. He allowed me to be on the team. I had to keep up good grades, which was something new to me. Like, I, I, I never was good at school, but I learned how to read. I figured out mathematics, and I had to just start my journey. Um, and so that's where it kind of led me. So I, I literally on a limb just went to Dixie just to play football. Um, and then came a day... Where I was like, man, I can't keep working three jobs <laughs> to get into the next semester. Because I did that over one year. I was moving. I was in a moving company, you could say. Um, but it was really just family and friends just saying, here's a couple bucks if you help me move some of my furniture for the summer. Um, the other job that I had was I worked at Caption Call. I pretty much spoke for the deaf if that makes sense. So I did that from my shifts for midnight to 3 a.m. And then I would have football in the morning. Then I'd have school. And then I'd do moving furniture at night. And then if I had enough time, I went to this code academy where Blake Barney also helped me get a little internship to help cover just measly little bills throughout the week. So I was doing that full schedule and trying to date for a year and it was it was awful so then came to the day that I just was like hey I feel like I'm good enough I'm going to ask this coach <laughs> if I can have a scholarship and he flat out said no and I was like oh man what am I going to do now so I pretty much just worked those three jobs and I picked up rugby on the side which was pretty much a lifesaver for me because it, I wasn't giving up the gloves or giving up yeah. the cleats for 
for sports, I could still have that last little bit of drive. How well did you take to rugby? Because I know, I think you said your dad loves rugby. Yeah, so he played up back in Fiji. Um, he played since he was a little kid. And it wasn't until he got more serious into like boarding schools and getting better education that he kind of had to drop that. And he had a pretty bad accident where he went for, he dove for a ball and a guy tried to kick it and it actually broke his arm right in half, right above his elbow. And his wrist shot down to his elbow. <laughs> so they had to reset that and he's got this huge gnarly scar going all the way up to his elbow. But that was pretty much it. He when we When he moved to the States, he never really taught us rugby or any of his passions that way. He kind of wanted us to kind of grow and develop on our, on our own. So we got caught up in American baseball, yeah. and American football, and we just kind of rode with that. And he was like, I just want to see what you guys do. Yeah. So he never taught us. And, and after football, getting into rugby, that was my first experience with actual rules of the game and not some like pickup game with some friends that we just kind of made it up and just tackled each other for a while but did you uh what position did you play so this is even worse <laughs> we played 15s and 7s and i actually still don't know the numbers <laughs> i just played second from the last guy on the outside so i know the last guy's the wing center so i so i played center then so I would just try to get it down as far as I could, and I'd just dish it off to the wing, and so he could have a shot. So I'd try to take down at least two guys with me, and I'd dish it off. Yeah, I played for a year with the Kansas City Blues B-side, uh, rode the bench. Came, nice, I came nice. off the bench. Uh, <laughs> wing, uh, wing, center, second five-eighths, and for a tournament, flanker. That was, I. they kind of, told me not to do any more lineouts because every time I jump up for the ball, I'd throw my knee, throw my feet back and kick the guy in the balls. So, <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out too well. But yeah, that I know it's something as Polynesian people, we were drawn to those sports. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's something that I miss because I only played for a year because then it got expensive. Um, I know that in New Zealand, Australia, that and. Probably Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga, they have scholarships. So they have academy, they have all that stuff. Here, we don't really have that because it's not that big of a sport, which I think it out to me, it's better than football. Yeah, I said it. Yeah, no, I I'll agree. say it a million times. I agree with you. <laughs> but I find myself more enjoying rugby league than union lately. Oh. Um, and that, because league. It's very, I don't want to say it's similar to American football, but it also, the rules aren't as complicated and it's a straightforward, you get six, six attempts to get to the other side of that. You just turn the ball over or kick it. Um, but yeah, I, there's actually a league. Um, I think it's called North American Rugby League. And I think the closest team is Vegas, yeah. the Blackjacks. But then Union, in, in, in the United States, Union is way bigger than League. Um, but I think that's just because of the national level. You know, rugby, rugby Union's huge on the national stage, whereas League is m probably more prominent at a club level. Mm. Um, but besides that, 
get off track. <laughs> no worries. But uh, so did your so with my so my mother was born in American Samoa. She, technically, I say I'm first generation on my mom's side, but technically I'm second because she had citizenship when she was born. Mm. But as far as being born and raised in the mainland, I consider myself first generation. You're first generation, and um, I think you know we talk about culture a lot we got to pick and they, they got to pick and choose for us what parts of the culture we like what we still follow and chris chris van in the first episode was asking me do does he felt like that hurt my cultural connected connection i said no he said yes now that i look back on it i still I'm kind of 50-50. Um, did you, did your dad bring anything over? Like, does he have anything cultural that he passed on to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, he, it was very, I would say, like you said, they chose, they pick and chose what things they wanted to bring over yeah. with them. Like the things that don't make sense, they didn't bring. Stayed. Yeah. Because my, my dad, at the time, um, marrying my mom, who was white, um, so they had an an interracial relationship, which basically at that time, like, they got a lot of flack for. Was that in Fiji? No, so that was in BYU, yeah, okay. Hawaii. Um, oh, really? Yeah, Still, so, back then, it was yeah. frowned upon? Yeah, so. That's kind of, that's shocking to me. Yeah, you know? so some some of the <clears throat> they had nine of their best friends that also had an interrelation, an interrelation, interracial. <laughs> sorry, an interracial relationship. And of those nine friends, I think there's only three, including my parents, that are still together, just because the racial um, differences, yeah, the, the cultural, cultural difference. differences. Sometimes they they can break a couple for sure. Dude, I've seen it happen so many times. Yeah, and I've seen so many stereotypes. Um, there was a there's a small guy that I grew up with. He's a little he's a little bit older than me, and he got married to a Palangi lady, and he became a cop. And they ended up getting divorced, but her view on it was Polynesians don't amount to anything. So. Because she didn't like him hanging out with his family. And I'm like, you cannot separate a Polynesian, doesn't matter what they are, from their family. That's a big no-no. And it, it, like, I think that the, the lack of understanding of you know, how much family brings to the, to the table. And I think that's why you see a lot of, a lot of Polynesians are members of the church because the big emphasis on family absolutely and you know it was already a big thing before the church was there but we gravitated towards the church because of that um but yeah that's that's crazy yeah i i would not expect that in laie at byu hawaii that's yeah i just it was it was an interesting time for sure like in my dad and my mom even still tell me stories of like my mom's side of the family saying like oh you know the fijians they when they have their first born child 
they they eat them or they give them away or they it's just absurd things like crazy yeah. things. Well, so like in Samoa in small culture, from what I was told growing up, the firstborn goes and lives with the grandparents. Yeah, and I have um, I know a guy. He he actually did the tattoo on my back. Uh, he, he's married to a Palangi. He's Cook Islander and Maori. At their wedding, the his mother comes up to the wife and she goes okay i'll see you i'll be back for my grandchild and she freaked out because and that's the thing with the culture they don't like when people come here from the islands they expect it to stay the same yeah but it's <laughs> such a more fast-paced way of living here and you know everybody comes here to live the american dream but they don't realize the reality of it and how much it's going to actually cost them. You know, for instance, horrible example, 90 Day Fiance, Asuelu <laughs> and Kalani, who live in St. George. So crazy enough, I actually still haven't seen those episodes. I've only heard about <laughs> just what, what that is all about. Yeah. Just the cultural difference. But the way that the mom is asking for money in the islands that works because family in the island is more than just your family it's the community it's like your village your community that you live in now here it's different because you know we don't live in those huge communities anymore we we might live in the community but we have our separate households we have our separate bank accounts. We have we have separate responsibilities. And I think that's what my grandfather wanted to instill in my aunties and uncle when they moved here. It's like, we have to be American. We have to be accepted into this culture. And it's crazy because they, my mom was telling me that they were getting called the N-word when they moved to middle of nowhere, the middle of the country yeah. in Missouri. And they're like, what is that? We don't know what that means. It's like, whatever. And, but, you know, they adjusted. They spoke English outside of the house and someone in the house. I'm pretty sure if I got that wrong, one of my aunties will correct me. <laughs> um, sorry, aunties, if I got that wrong. Uh, but yeah, just that adjustment. And from what? You know, Bud told me before is like your dad came here with nothing. Well, to Hawaii, right? Yep. And I think that's like, you know, he came here to live the American dream, but he adjusted. Yeah. You still can keep parts of the culture. We don't have to keep everything. I know that there's some someone or Polynesians out there that will disagree with that, but this is a different time. It's you know. I mean, we are finding ourselves, but there's also, we are refining our culture too. But we still don't have to keep the things that don't work anymore. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I really appreciate, go back to it, what New Zealand's doing with Coconut, Fresh TV, uh, New Zealand One TV, I think it's called. They're putting out all this content that's bringing culture back to us that has gone missing or forgotten but 
yeah we got off track again sorry no worries, no worries. but yeah um so back to your back to your dad um that the whole late year thing threw me off threw me for a it's, loop yeah it's Cause crazy that's crazy because that when when you go to like yeah like my fan that's the first place my family came from Samoa was La Yeah. And they stayed there for a while. And I've gone there many times. I lived there for four months. And you just don't see that that type of interact well, from my experience, I was only ten. I didn't see that type of experience. Yeah, I got made fun of before being Hapahali. But I didn't care because they know they they call me half a holly and i'm like you think i you know i'm half poly <laughs> Tech, call me half a holly all you want call me avocado all you want i'll own it yeah but yeah so from from hawaii yeah so it was from hawaii it was it was kind of crazy um he actually got on scholarship to perform at the pcc but the scholarship would only cover his school and his room so his room and board pretty much after everything was said and done, he would have one dollar left. And that would be what he would use to save up to go out on dates with my mom or whatever. But they kind of cold, they captivated their relationship there. And eventually, they got married there. But with that whole family and point and cultural differences, there was a lot of things that my dad like had to change. And that I think he wanted to instill in us of things that he had to let go when he moved over. So my mom kind of got a little bit homesick, and when they got married, they actually moved to Utah. So just like you said, the number one rule is you don't separate a Polynesian from his family. But that was that was his separation. I think it was, I want to say it was 20 plus years. My dad just called his family on the phone, and he never went back to Fiji. That's crazy. It, it is crazy because you get really homesick. It's it's crazy like what family does for you when they're there for you how they can provide or support is pretty crucial but he he knew that he couldn't go back because he couldn't progress if he kept going back and trying to catch up and just see how his family was doing it's not that he didn't forget them um but he would support where he could um it was always the most interesting argument my dad would always send money (laughs) back to family (laughs) so my brother and I, like, we loved sports. And a lot of the times, we wouldn't get, like, new stuff. Like, new, new, or, or the, like, the top of the brand, top yeah. of the line, or whatever. You get the right L's instead of the Nikes. <laughs> yeah. So, because he would support the family over there. And they didn't have much. Like, my dad would tell me from time to time, a tsunami hit the island. I'm going to send money back. Because homes would get wiped out, and part of our family was living in a cave. I think what that would do to one of us, if we found out that some of our family was living in a cave yeah. on rocks to sleep on, I think we would we would move back and say, what can we do? But he knew he had to stay here. It was interesting. He landed after finishing school at BYU-Hawaii. He got a teaching job up at Kearns Junior High up in West Valley, and that's where we were. Um, his teacher's salary job at that time I have a picture of it, and I wish I would have found it before, but I think his salary was 15000 a year. So every school year was 15000 And he had five kids at the time. And I remember him getting pretty emotional about it, but he said, 
over my teaching career, we never got on welfare. We never took church assistance because I never wanted my kids to feel like they they needed help that way or like that they would put yeah, up yeah. right then and continue to push to get more and strive through any hardship that was going on. So along with this 15000 15, a year salary, he would send money back home and then with whatever left we had top ramen pb and j's and frozen pizza it was like oh and spaghetti i ate that so much growing up but it taught me a lot because he he's his main goal to teach us i think was to never to never feel like you needed handouts like at whatever point in life and i think that came clear to me when i got to college myself i was probably making like a hundred bucks every two weeks enough to fill up my tank of gas get to school there was even points where i had to walk to school to the college and then walk to practice and then walk back home and not that like i'm saying that's any wowing accomplishment but i feel like there's a lot of people and a lot of yeah a lot of people out there that do that same thing because i think that's what we're trying to instill as a community yeah. now is like we will strive to do whatever we need to do but yeah i'll probably get flack for this but i feel like when polynesians moved here you know kind of got lazy <laughs> but who am i i'm just an afakasi guy <laughs> yeah my, my opinion's only off of my uncles yeah some of them are lazy, for sure. Well, no, 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 no. Like, just not a majority of them, but you, like, I think, and that's what plays in the stereotype. So you see those Polynesians that get, that get the stereotype of, oh, they don't work. They just sit all day and they eat. That's all they do. <laughs> and I think that is a horrible representation of our people. Yeah. And I, I call all Polynesians, I call them all our people because we are one people. We just have different languages and different cultures. They're all super similar. Um, yeah. I feel like, you know, dispelling that stereotype. I, crap, I take that statement back. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like we, we got too... And I'm just throwing that out there. That we got too used to the way of American life. Like, like island life is pretty chill, but you know when I went to Samoa, all their food is in their yard. They have their pig pen. They have their chicken fence. They have their vegetable. They have their garden. You know they actually had to move for their food. And I think another shocking statement I'm going to make: the worst thing to happen to New Zealand and Australia is KFC. <laughs> You hear the stories of legendary all black and some oh, winger Vanga Twingamala. I think it was uh, man, I can't remember. Or Michael Jones. He said KFC destroyed that guy because when he came from Samoa, or I think he was in New Zealand already, but he was one of the most feared wingers out there. He was huge. And he would go down to have a feed. Uh, I, I'm picking up all these Kiwi slang, 
and I'm using him in everyday life and I feel stupid. <laughs> but he'd go have a feed and he'd polish off two buckets of KFC right there. Dang. And I'm like, yep, that 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 hurt us. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting because like, I know you wanted me to touch on part of Fiji is when I when I visited Fiji is when I actually started to understand island lifestyle like because my dad had only taken me once before but I was too little really to remember and when I when he brought me the second time like I actually learned an incredible amount of actually how hard life is out there just like you said like you have to I would see some of my cousins and I'd be like hey what are you up to and they'd be out like oh we've got to go catch fish for the day I mean there's not just a food reserve that they can pull from yeah we and, don't eat yeah yeah like, so if I don't catch then we don't eat tonight and because you're in tonight I have to catch a lot and I was like whoa 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 you don't have to catch a, you don't have to catch like more than more than normal he's like no I'm excited for you to be here because I think one thing I didn't know is that the people in the islands are all rooting for the people who are over here. Mm-hmm. It was incredible to walk into one of my grandma's um, homes, which is just this tiny little hut. And she had pictures of me. That's crazy. Pictures of my siblings. Pictures of my wife. Pictures of my dad. And I had never met her before. And I come walking in. And she just starts crying, and I'm like, "Holy cow!" Like this is amazing. Like they knew everything about me, but but that's because my dad was so good at keeping communications back and forth, and letting them know when we were coming, or it was our birthday, and this is what we did, and it was very simple stuff. But they they remember so well, and I remember when I left, they were saying, "We hope you continue to do well and work, and all your." aspirations and your ambition we hope it grows because they're just rooting for you and it was the craziest i had never met people who were just so pumped for yeah. me to just succeed in life. well and they're yeah. very interested in your life over here but yeah. they're also um very very loving yeah. very welcoming and i think that brings to another point where the culture and somebody from outside the culture might not jive. Like, there's there's no such thing as private property. Like, you go to, when I went to Hawaii, like, you go keep your sandals outside. Yeah. And when you leave the next day, they're gone. Because <laughs> yeah. your cousin has them. Yeah. Or even here, even in, when I lived in California, um, and my cousin warned me before I moved out there you might buy a new shirt your cousin's going to cop it and wear it the next day so don't expect to see it again yeah <laughs> which it like here it barely it, it rarely happened but like in Hawaii like I think if my wife when I take my wife and kids out there and we stay at a family's place you know don't be surprised if your sandals if you see your sandals on somebody else's feet yeah, because that's just the way it is. Yeah. It's it's communal. Yeah, you know we it you know we take care of each other. Uh, you know, someone's short on food. You know, we always we they're always there, and I think that's you know, 
something that I learned a lot when I went to Samoa is I got the nickname Umu because I wanted to learn and I was in the Umu the whole time the outdoor kitchen I shaved the coconut for the for the uh, parasami and I was there I helped kill the pig I helped gut the pig I helped shave the hair off the pig yeah. and that was a big deal to me because I was learning I, I almost got a tattoo and my mom I was 15 my mom <laughs> put a stop to that but it you know to see like I have three kids mm-hmm. their biggest dilemma is what video games you're going to play yeah and we have two Nintendo Switches and if you were to go to the islands they're like what are you arguing about we'll take turns like we'll, st- we'll wait our turn <laughs> yeah. but and even over there their biggest dilemma is what am I going to eat yeah how am I going to get food how am I going to make it to the next day and I want to take my kids back when they're old enough to appreciate it I was lucky I went when I was 15 because I had a bigger appreciation for it and then when I came back you know I was like telling all my Palangi friends oh I did this I did that it was amazing and they're like cool I was like oh I have nobody to share this with yeah and um, but yeah that you know that that culture clash but it, was your did your wife have some like culture shock going over there so she did in a couple ways um one of the things that I think shocked her probably the most was how early everybody got up. And that was because they needed to beat the sun or else it was too hot to work in the day. You know what I mean? So we would get up and my dad's always instilled in us to get up early. Um, I don't do it as well as I, I should now, but he would always get us up at around like 5 a.m. or he would be up at 5 a.m. and he would make it known like, I was up before any of you could even fart in the morning. Like. <laughs> So we would, we would get up really early. We'd walk down to the beach. And the big thing there is we had, the, we'd have hot chocolate. <laughs> we'd have hot, hot chocolate. And what we called was bumble cow, which is just like these scones. It's like Navajo tacos, pretty much. Yeah. And we would just dip that in butter and jelly. And what we'd do is we'd just eat it by the shore. And we'd kind of wake up and we would start moving but my wife she would she'd be asleep or she'd be sitting on the on the on the couch just with her eyes closed not really not really even operating at all but that was one of that was one of the culture shocks and one of the other things was just how amazing the women are over there um because traditionally the women did all the cooking they did all the cleaning the men just had pretty much a lot of fun (laughs) Um, we would go drink kava till four in the morning, come back, sleep, wake up late, and then we'd go fishing or whatever. But she was just amazed with a lot of my aunts. Um, one of them was pretty much her guide over there. Her name's Auntie Laite. And she pretty much walked her through, okay, when we walk in the house, we walk through this door. Or when we come in, we've got to make sure our Sulu's on and because she was American, she would just be wearing her short shorts. It was hot, she had a tank top on. She's like, okay, we make sure we cover up here. This is a, a really respectful family home. We wear our Sulu and she was 
amazing with my wife. And my wife, even to this day, she just shed a couple tears, just like of yeah. how kind, how loving, and how even my family knew her before. Yeah, like <laughs> she had no idea that that was going to happen. But she would sit down for um, dinner. And they would serve her first. And she would feel almost obligated to be like, well, is there anything I can help you out in the, in the kitchen? Can I help cook beforehand? And it was kind of cool to see her kind of dive into that culture for a little bit. And then also have her be reciprocated on the other end of almost how easy it is over here. Like for dinner, I know normally it's just um, the husband will get home. I guess that the classic thing is the husband comes home, has a beer, expects a sandwich or something like that. But I feel like over in the cult, over in Fiji, it was the culture is completely different. It's like they, it's like pampering all the way in and out. Like as soon as you walk in the door, they're making sure you have a drink. You sit on the floor like over there, which doesn't sound <laughs> much better. But I, I felt like I was, like being cared for at all times they would ask have you slept yet do you need a nap do you need a blanket do you need a water do you need anything instead of just like a home-cooked meal and then that's it for the rest of the night or whatever how were the mosquitoes they were crazy my wife hated it dude mosquitoes in Samoa rough yeah dude it was bad did you guys have mosquito nets yeah so we we brought a little like two-man tent that we'd sleep outside like, we wouldn't even sleep in the house because they didn't have enough space. So we just slept outside. Um, but when we were inside, we slept in the house once. And that's where everybody wanted to sleep. So we're like, oh, let's try sleeping inside. We'll just sleep on the floor. And she hated it. She was like, can we go back to our tent? Because we leave the windows open to catch the breeze. But if you leave the windows open, the mosquitoes are coming in. So she woke up with just mosquito bites all over her face all over our arms and she was like i want to sleep in the tent the whole time because we kept it zipped and no mosquitoes could get in so that was another culture shock for her um that i think was a little bit rougher but not that bad at all um but was the main so correct me if i'm wrong the main point of going there was to buy land to start a kava farm so um Yes, it was for the kava farm, but it wasn't to buy land. The main objective that my dad wanted to have coming over was really to introduce me and my wife to the family over there. That was the main goal. Um, but yeah, so he does have a business over there. Um, he has a ton of acres full of kava that he just continues to attend to. And he's he has a lot of the family working on it right now that have their own little portions that they work on. Um, but the main part of it for Kava was to show us that his work didn't stop. Like, even though he had left, yeah, he was still working on things back in the Kava farm. So a lot of the things that he did was to just help benefit the home. Like, my mom always, I feel like, thought, oh, he's just trying to buy a shirt for those kids over there. He's trying to buy... But he actually made a huge, a, a much greater impact. So, like, one thing that he contributed to was building a school out there for the kids. Because one of the things that I didn't know of was that there was... The way that kids get to school over there, it's not by bus. 
And if it is by bus, it's going to take you about four hours to get there. The other thing was you'd have to go by boat. And to go to school, they would make the kids stay in that region of the island for about two weeks, and then they could come home. Hmm. So what he wanted to do was build a school in between those points so that kids could go home at night, back and forth. And so they ended up accomplishing that. And one of the things I think he wanted us to see was how big of a difference you can make with just little, little money. There's this huge school. I want to say it was probably filled with close to about 50 to 60 kids, ranging from five years old to probably junior high age. And so that's a lot of a lot of the Kava Farm building and the school. That's a lot of the things that he contributed to and will eventually end up paying off later on as we continue to sell the coffee around and stuff like that have you learned a lot about the cultivation and all that did you, your father already knew all this stuff knew all of about cultivating kava yeah that's yeah. that's pretty dope yeah he knew exactly and even to this day he's like man so what you do with kava is you have to find the right land so actually the kava that he's growing isn't even on his homeland it's actually on another island um, closer to Numbumbu, but he had to find the soil that would hold on to the root. But pretty much what he did is every year he would go back and he would plant a couple acres worth of kava and see what grew. And eventually he would plant, he would plot an entire land, like seed an entire lot, and then the next year he'd do another lot. Because kava, the the older it gets, the stronger it is. It's kind of like wine. Yeah. The older it gets, the better. And um, he found that if he let his roots sit for five years, it would be the best kava. It would be the strongest. It would be the most potent. So you wouldn't need as much. But you could have a lot if you grew a bunch of it. So he has pretty much harvesting years where he'll go back and harvest the five-year or if he needs more supply, he'll cut a two-year or a three-year, yeah. just depending on where his supplies are. But <clears throat> he actually has a lot of, like, one of my, like, four of my uncles are there constantly on the farm, and they're constantly working, which one of those uncles used to live in the States. So they just take their turns rotating mm. through um, prepping the land. Any chance that you're going to get any kava, any of that kava out here? <laughs> yeah. So we never go kava dry? <laughs> we always have, my dad always has a ton. So whenever I go up north, I usually bring back, bring back down probably like two or three pounds with me. But they end up always getting there. I'm like wiped out dry <laughs> like the next like two weeks. I've, I've never had Fijian kava, only Tongan kava. It's, it's pretty good. Tongan kava is good too. Um, they say that's the strongest but I heard Vanuatu Van Vanuatu Vanuatu and Kava Kava is pretty strong someone Kava's kind of weak I guess <laughs> I, that, that, hey, I'm just going off what I was told by other Samoans um, well, let's get on that let's get some soil samples yeah. let's bring some uh, what, uh, I don't know what they're called what the, the Kava roots no 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 the uh the people who study plants. Oh, botanists? Botanists. Or, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Let's get some botanists over there. Botanists might be insects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I gotta 
I got a degree in history, so I don't know. <laughs> well, <that's laughs> but uh, yeah, um, the Kava Farmer was interesting. So he just gets a, I wouldn't say monthly, um, but we get every time someone travels back or or goes there and travels back, there's always an extra suitcase, <laughs> and it's always <laughs> chock full. So there might be another trip here soon. We're trying to plan one maybe next year. Yeah. So was that the last time you went? Yep. So yeah, that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So we'll see how many times we go back and forth. But, but it's a learning process. Oh, absolutely. You get to know you get, literally get to know your roots. Mm -hmm. And when you have kids, it's something that you can teach them. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. My brother Jake came up with this term because he's. Uh. A quarter someone he called himself Afa Afa Kasi yeah I don't know if that if that's real <laughs> or if that even makes sense but I like it <laughs> so we're claiming it it doesn't it, this is the thing it doesn't matter because my kids are a quarter wait yeah they're a quarter and I've you know I've gone over this in the past podcast but I really want them to know their roots their culture I want them to know their entire like my wife's Cuban I want them to know their Cuban their Cuban history their culture as well as their Samoan culture it's important you know we posted we reposted a story from Fresh TV and it was from one of the elders talking about it's up to this next generation to keep the culture alive it's up for us to keep our language alive. You know, I barely know someone, but I'm learning. I barely know Fiji. Yeah, and that's the thing. We have the tools at our disposal now to learn because before, what, we had a book and we had our family. Yep. But life's crazy. You know, we, you know, football, baseball, basketball, you're always busy. You got school, you got church, you got all that stuff. But now we have apps, we have YouTube, we have all these different things. And I think that's one of those things about this podcast is we're not just, you know, Samoan Language Week ended two weeks ago. We're not just, you know, just because I'm Samoan doesn't mean we're only going to celebrate Samoan Language Week. Whatever Polynesian culture has a language week, we're throwing it up. It doesn't matter. This is not just Samoan centric. I've had one someone on this podcast the first one was the first person was Tongan the third one Hawaiian and now I got the Fijian <laughs> it's not a quota system guys it's not racist <laughs> but you know to get out there and showcase our knowledge and what we what we're what we're about you know it's something that's important because we can't let it die because once it dies it's gone you know, and that's a big concern for me because I've dealt with not feeling in touch with my culture because, you know, being kept out of it, certain aspects of it. Did you have to deal with it? Did you, was there a Fijian community up in where you guys lived or was your dad like the only one up there? I wouldn't say he was the only one. Somehow he found a Fijian yeah. somewhere that he could go mix the grog with you know he could go um 
really re like live some of that culture or have some of that culture still part of him while he was up here so i wouldn't say he was the only one but there was not a lot and he would have to just and he would mix with tongan Samoans, yes. hawaiians because i think what he came to find out when he left his family that there is a greater community of just family even here that we can hold on to we can grasp and that is the polynesian community um i've never been to an event where i didn't feel like i was i wasn't at home or i didn't feel like i felt off or every time i've gone to like a wedding or a dinner or whatever it is it was always so welcoming a kiss on the cheek a hello or even a hello or greeting in my own tongue you know or in fijian which was really to me super respectful because even though i didn't know it as well as maybe i wanted to or should have um it was always there and their hands were always welcoming yeah you know and so i think what my dad tried to do is he's he's tried to implement that in all cultures so we he lives in a little rinky-dink neighborhood up in west valley and there's a lot of widows there and there's a lot of mexicans or um caucasian or whoever just a random assortment of people but whenever he goes into that neighborhood he's always i always see him picking up trash from gutters from other people's lawns i'm like dad what are you doing why are you doing that and after so many times i saw there was one instance where this lady was trying to get this huge piece of wood she accidentally threw in this giant industrial garbage and this lady, he, he couldn't get in it. So he called me. He's like, hey, Mark, I need you to come pull um, this giant plank of wood out. And I was like, man, why? Are you? It's a Sunday afternoon. We're all at home trying to have dinner. And you're trying to pull out wood from this lady's garbage disposal or garbage can thing. And once I pulled it out, he, he gave that lady a hug, walked away. And it finally clicked. I was like, this guy misses family so much he's trying to make this entire neighborhood his family every time i go up he knows somebody he greets somebody he doesn't know or goes and seeks them out even knocks on our door and it's just really interesting to me um there's this lady who's a widow who he will run food to every night for no reason like we don't even know this lady we he just goes every single time and what I've just come to find out is he's tried to make her his sister. And even sometimes we even throw flack. Like, dude, why do you go to that old lady's house? Like, she doesn't even care. She doesn't even leave the house. She only cares about that dog that sits in the window. And he just laughs and smirks to himself. But I know deep down, he's like, that's part of my family. Yeah. And it's, so I feel like that's what he's trying to cult, or cultivate. cultivate by living here. Yeah. If that makes sense. By bringing some of that culture with him. I think that's what he's trying to do. It's it's pretty crazy because anywhere you go, you'll find another. There's ways to find another Polynesian. Yeah. Like, yeah. How, how did Bud find you? Football. Football. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Obvious. So. Obvious. <laughs> obvious. <laughs> like you see, the Polynesians popping up everywhere in the states: East Coast, South, North, Northeast. We've always kind of stayed in California the northwest utah but you know with football and 
you know, all these other schools back east seeing the potential that Polynesian players have. You're seeing them go to schools that traditionally don't have a Polynesian population. Yeah. Like all the good polys went to BYU, Utah, SC, UCLA, Washington. Like it, pretty much any Pac-12 team or Mountain West team had a, had a Polynesian but it's crazy that you that were popping up at Alabama, Maryland, <laughs> Tennessee. Like you see, you, you you can see them without even knowing their name because you see the long hair sticking out of the back of the helmet. Yeah. But yeah, and then another so another reason I wanted to have you on is because of where we work. You. That's the second time. To me, that you took a big gamble on yourself. You put yourself out there because you had a specific skill. You know what you're worth, and you just put all the money on yourself. <laughs> and you went, you like, and that's you know, you're climbing the corporate ladder, and you don't see a lot of Polynesians doing that now, which, you know, it, it's it's changing, but we need more of it. You know, and I think it's it's a very important thing. Like, how did you feel when you went through that process? Yeah, uh, it was it was pretty nerve wracking to be totally honest. I was scared, crapless. Like I was so terrified. But pretty much how it worked out was, I went to school to get a computer science degree, and. <laughs> What's embarrassing to say is I never graduated with an associate's and I never graduated with a degree of any sorts, but I knew what I really wanted and I really what I really wanted at that time was my computer classes because after football said no and rugby didn't seem like it was going anywhere, I was like, you know what I probably should really man up for this life thing, whatever it is. And so I was like, I feel like I can just gather the skills from college and I'll just try to make my way with it all so what I did is I took all the computer science classes I could up until a certain point and I was talking to my counselor and they said well all you need right now is your general education and I was like okay so what do I have to do to get that done he's like well you're gonna need probably like three more semesters of general education I was like I don't have that kind of yeah. money so I'm probably going to just bounce. <laughs> probably going to walk from this. And that's when, um, Bud at that point kind of like coaxed me and said, Hey, I know you like to work hard. Why don't you just come work for me? And I, at that time I was dating my wife currently, um, Maddie. And it was just crazy how it all worked out. But he was like, you can save up for your ring here. And what was just so interesting about it is as I continued to work there, I really found a passion for our work. I was just a warehouser. Like I just, all I did was move boxes all day, pretty much. But it, it, there was one specific moment that changed my outlook on where we work. And that was when we went to convention. And the best time. Literally, <laughs> like, it, gives, it gives me the goosebumps just to get out of it. I started the week after convention. Yeah, and I was so 
bummed that I didn't start earlier. But my experience at convention was this is amazing. It's the best thing. Like it's the best experience, and it gets you more involved. Yeah. So all like all I knew was that I was just fulfilling orders and I'm pushing this product out the door so that moms and singles families can pay their bills. Because obviously we're moving a lot of jewelry. Yeah. We're helping so that <laughs> lots of jewelry. And so I when I saw how many people were there, and then when I saw one of the owners of the company speaking, she literally just changed my whole thought process and outlook on life and what I did and what I could be a part of. Because at the time, I was looking at trying to take the skills that I'd taken from college and I wanted to put them into an app that I wanted to create with one of my buddies. I remember that. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so I've hit this crossroads in life where I'm either going to go all in and I'm going to burn the bridges with my current work status and I'm going to try to create this app and make it my own way or I'm going to stay here and work for our current company. Um, and what I chose was my, my decision came after that convention because I knew what kind of impact I had currently, not even using my computer skills, but I knew that I loved what I was doing. I absolutely loved it. And that was just simply fulfilling these orders for people who I guess didn't have a, a great impact on life. You could say they were poor and all of a sudden because they could sell jewelry, they could find their why, they could feel beautiful in their own skin, I could help be a part of that. If I, if I could be any part of that, I was, I was okay. I loved it. And so pretty much from then on, I, I was just talking to our managers and I was like, so I'm looking at either leaving or I want to be able to apply my skill here in paparazzi. And pretty much they just said, well, I don't, I don't know if we can use our skill in the warehouse, but maybe we can set up an interview with the owners. And I was like, with the owners? I was like, dude, it doesn't have to go that far. I just want to be able to help out anywhere I can. And so pretty much he's like, okay, well, just, he's a cool guy. He's, he's very hands-on. The owners at Paparazzi, they're all in. They are helping fulfilling orders. They're helping on calls. They're helping on everywhere that they can. And so he's like, well, let's just, just see if you can talk to him. And so I texted him. I was like, hey, if there's any chance I can just sit down with you and chat, I would, I would, it'd be great, greatly appreciated. And so I kind of told him my situation. I was like, I'm either leaving or I want to see how I can help this thing just move forward. And so he's like, well, okay, uh, maybe you should talk to my wife. And so I talked to his wife and I said the same thing. And they came to the decision of, okay, um, we love that you have passion for it. We love that you found a, a why in paparazzi of why you fulfill orders or move boxes or whatever. So we'll give you a shot. There's a software that maybe you can help out with and maybe some computer stuff around the office and printers and whatever. And what she said after that drove the fear of God in me. She pretty much said, so we'll have you come to our corporate office and work for two weeks 
if you can't figure it out in two weeks, we'll just let you go. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I, I don't know if this turned into a good deal or a bad deal for me. But I was like, you know what? I love it. So I'm gonna, I, was, I, was, I was like, yeah. If I, if I can't help you in any other way, fire me in two weeks. And I appreciated that because there's the concept of burning the boats. Mm-hmm. That great military story where an army shows up, they're ready for battle, and the captain says we're burning the boats. There's no going back at all. We can only move forward. We can only The only step next is we're taking over the city. And so I just tried to apply that the whole time. Those two weeks were probably the most self-refining weeks of my life. I feel like where all my dad's life lessons really started to come through. Of like, you're not taking any handouts. You're going to figure this out. You're going to sit down. You're going to take whatever hours it might take. And what was great is that I had a great support system um, around me. Um, I learned a lot of hard work um, from Bud, um, from a lot of people before, like Max and Paul, who had really showed me what hard work was. Another one was Justice, another Samoan in the mix. Um, another Afakasi? <laughs> yeah. We but, always joke, you put us together, you get one full Samoan. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but I, I would look at these guys, and they would get up at 2 a.m. to honestly fulfill the job that was really 7 to 3 or 2 or whatever, like a normal 9 to 5 hourly job would be. And I saw that, and I was like, man, if they're doing that, they must love this thing. And I want to be a part of that. And so eventually from that part on, from that point on, I just went all in. I just tried to figure out anything I could with computer software stuff, printers, or just simple tasks of even going back to filling orders. But I found my love in paparazzi. Like, I will stay there till the day I die. Same. Yeah, like, it's it's just the greatest thing to be able to see people who had nothing. Like, to hear the stories of some of those women who are selling jewelry every day is incredible. One of my favorite ones was um, before she joined paparazzi, she was selling watermelons on the side of the street for 25 cents. And she would barely sell enough watermelons to give herself food for the end of the day. So what she actually had to do to join paparazzi was she asked her money for family (laughs) to get her first, I guess you could say, starter pack and start selling jewelry. But that's always kind of stuck with me because when you hit rock bottom and you're backed up against the wall, you'll do whatever it takes to get to the next point to try to get comfortable again. And it's cool to see their hunger not die. They're still striving to become great and then it's interesting to see those who get full or like they're satisfied and they stop pushing but i always see my dad and even where he's at in his old age he is still striving to do more he's always trying to help his community or help those in need and i felt like i've kind of taken that upon myself in my own work as i'll help anybody who's in need and if there's anything i can physically do with the education I've been given, the even the opportunities I've been given, I feel like I need to give back to that community or whoever I can help, if that makes sense. Ever since then, I feel like if I've lived by those two rules and living under God, 
I feel like I've been okay. Has your dad been pretty proud of everything that's happened? Yeah, it's... <clears throat> he he has been proud of me. And it's... It's humbling for me, for him to come down and see what I've been able to do um, physically and mentally and being able to, like, grow as a man, I guess. It has been pretty... An amazing experience. Everybody loves it when their parents yeah. tell them that they're proud of them. And so I feel like to have him visit St. George and say, this is where I'm building my home or this is yeah. where I'm going to work and to see him just be like, okay, they're, they're okay down there. You did it. They're, they're, they're happy. That's, I think that's a, a huge accomplishment for me, but I know in the same breath, I'm not done. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's plenty more to do and i hope that these aren't my greatest accomplishments yeah. if you know we always want to always progress yeah we don't want to stay stagnant i think stagnant stagnation is probably the worst thing to happen because you know there's only one other way to go is backwards yeah and none of us want that you know we always have to can be continually pushing for the next the next uh, challenge and I think you know where we work we have those challenges you know something else will present itself and then something after that will present itself um, how would you say well how much of the culture would you say your dad has left an impact on you pretty much like a lot of the stuff was from Fiji yeah but growing like pretty, no I guess the the work ethic that your father instilled like the work ethic on the islands is superb like it's because it's survival yeah he he um I think he did the best he could possibly do yeah. with me I don't know if I've <laughs> ended up like a crapshoot with that or not but um I feel like I've he's I mean it goes back to getting up in the morning he said you need to have a routine whether that's so my routine now is usually when I get up early I usually listen to an educational or an uplifting message so it could either be so my some of my favorite things are like business or finance so i listened to a podcast actually called snacks daily yep and i listen to that because it gives me just some information in 15 minutes and then i'll move to either like a conference talk from the church or something weird like that but just those two little things can just propel me into that day so much better with a better mood with a better everything and actually makes the work ethic that I set out for the day it's out on the right foot yeah I can I can either apply what I learned in the morning or I can try to find the principle throughout the day if that makes sense so whether it's staying late which it doesn't always have to be staying late at work or it can be getting X amount done in a certain time frame is usually like if I can pull off that goal in the day then I succeeded at that day. But it takes a lot of work to think through some of those issues or even help 
somebody else solve that issue for themselves. Because a lot of what my work's turned into now is kind of helping the processes move more smoothly, I guess. Whether it's getting product from a different building to another building, or if, let's say, um, if we're trying to figure out what jewelry deadlines we need to hit by certain deadlines. The smoother I can make that transition, the better we're off. Yeah. But I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're going to wrap up. Um, favorite Fijian rugby player? Oh. Tuisuva. I think, I think that's... I think it's my favorite. Mine's either Wasile Sorive, the Sevens God. Yeah, Sorive, yeah, yeah, I think he's a given, but. Or Rubini Kakao Nobuka, who, man, if he would have stayed off the drugs, <laughs> he would have been an amazing, probably the all time, one of the all time greats. Um, last question Ramen or Simon? <laughs> I, I, I need to I need to start wrapping up these podcasts with those questions because I hear a lot of people. So I I asked, you know, my wife's like, "Do you want some ramen?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll take some salmon." She's like, "What's that?" I was like, that, "That's what you're holding right there." Yeah, I would probably. So growing up, it was always ramen for me. I'd have to say I'm a ramen guy. All right, thank you, Mark. Thanks for being on the podcast and letting us get some insight into your life um so thank you all for listening don't forget to listen subscribe rate and review on apple and spotify any help we can get moves us up the charts you know we're still pretty small this is the fourth episode um there was i had another episode uh ready to go out but batteries died in the process um i'm probably going to go up to salt lake and finish that with um uh with steven henderson uh that was a pretty amazing powerful to me interview um so look forward to that this one will be released on sunday night monday morning um lava thank you for joining us and we'll you'll hear from us next week